My name is Tom Lehman. Um, I've been at this church my entire saved life, uh, 1989. I was born again and regenerate. So I was not saved earlier, even though the Lutheran church was confirming me, which is confirming that I'm saved. False assurance is a dangerous thing. Uh, so came here in 1989 after some discussions with uh, the Lutheran church and the pastor there, and Stacy and I were having very distinct uh, marital issues at the time. God used that to save me. Yeah. And he used that to save her. So Stacy joined me here in 1990. And he continues to use us in ministry, counseling others, maybe in challenging marriages. But we have the joy of serving together, serving in Faith Builders since 1994, serving in special ministries for several years with Rick McLean. What a joy, what a privilege to be able to serve our eternal God. I want to talk about a couple other things before we get underway. You will find that there is a pamphlet, Adult Fellowship Groups. Is anyone here not in an adult fellowship group? All right, looks pretty good. I'd encourage you to take a look at these and possibly get, get plugged in. There are two new fellowship groups. Anchored uh, is actually a merger of faith builders, uh, where Stacy and I serve with Bill Shannon and Dr. Sanders, and that's merging with Carl Hargrove's group, Dulos. So we're, we're joyous about that merger, and, and we will be meeting next week, next Sunday, in uh, the Tower Building, third floor, uh, number 360. We invite you to come and join us. Uh, I, too, am not trying to sheep steal from any other fellowship group, but we need to be involved in it, or I'd encourage highly to be involved in an adult fellowship group. And then there is a brand new fellowship group called Steadfast. And Brian Bedebaugh, who's been on the mission field, I'm not certain how long, but probably 20 years or so, is going to be teaching that and heading that up. So all of these are for mixed ages and, and groups, whether single, married, doesn't matter, get involved. Uh, through fellowship groups also, uh, there are offshoots of Bible studies, this is where, in a big church, one of the challenges is that we get plugged in. We can float around and kind of be hidden in the masses. That does not serve our Christian walk well. We need to be encouraging one another, even challenging one another lovingly at, at certain times in our lives. Okay, so this is the last Sunday in July. Uh, next week, we'll be, uh, again, starting up the adult fellowship groups and we're excited about, about that as well. All right. Let's see if I missed anything here. Are there any questions before we get started? Okay. I do want to also reflect that there are... The Sundays in July are all recorded and online... And there are a number of them that I would highly recommend for your listening and your edification. 
as we're talking about some of the attributes of God, one that was also covered in the Sundays of July uh, was by Brad Clausen, The Jealousy of God. And many denominations um, avoid that topic and don't even consider it an attribute of God. Listening to Brad Clausen's message, you will see what a jealous God is. You will be blessed. Mike Riccardi also, on July 1st, uh, he also had a session, God and Evil. These are juxtaposed issues that are still related in with a good and perfect, holy, sovereign God. But it's a distinct challenge also. Um, It's the study of theodicy, and I would encourage that for your listening as well. In addition, John MacArthur, uh, though he didn't do a uh, Sundays in July, he did cover that issue at a League and Air conference, I believe in 2015, not certain about that. But you can Google that, and the title is The Problem of Evil. And it's an important topic as well for us to consider. We know that through Adam, we're all sinful creatures, right? We need to be reconciled to a holy God who demands absolute perfection. And so this deals with the problem of evil, its origin, and who is culpable, which we know is is man. But we also know from Scripture in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. We have such a great infinite God that our finite minds cannot comprehend the full concept of the greatness of God that does not mean we should not study the topic, right? So we'll do a little bit of that today. So we know the secret things do belong to Yahweh, and aren't we grateful? He is transcendent and omniscient and independent of any outside influence. One of the many miraculous aspects of our existence is the gift of God's very holy word. Have you ever considered that gift for very long? I mean, we know the existence of God in creation, right? But that really is an evidence that we see and man suppresses in unrighteousness, but sees the creative order and the beauty of things, even in a fallen world. But that doesn't bring salvation. We needed his direct influence, his his direct involvement to teach us who he is and what he demands of man and what he has done for us. So we do need to consider the creator of the universe, the creator of everything, that he made himself known in such amazing ways. Creation through his word and through his son. He made himself generally known in creation, and he wrote the inspired, God-breathed word. A letter in which he describes himself, his perfections, and his command for man to worship him and to live life holy before him. 
all of this and always with the focus upon his glory. So we're going to start with looking at his holy word briefly. I also want to commend to you another uh, Sundays in July um, message from Nathan Busnitz on the canonicity of Scripture. This, too, gives us the affirmation that this, this is God's word, his holy word. He is holy. The Son of God is holy. The Holy Spirit, obviously holy. His word is holy. It's his word. Revelation 21.5 says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write for these words are faithful and true. His word is faithful and true. So if you're uh, doing an outline, I would start with, So he gave us the written word. His holy, his holy word would be outline number one. John 17, 17 says, sanctify or set apart to make holy, to purify, to free from sin. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And this is to the disciples and to the universal church of God. We must know and believe his word as it is his holy word. In it, he provides information of himself, his attributes, his perfections, his will, and he provides the word as a compass for our lives. Praise God for this gift. So we need to have a sufficient view of Scripture. The Bible is the very word of God. We know 2 Timothy 3.16, that it is God-breathed, and is therefore without error and completely trustworthy in all that it asserts. In a world of no absolutes, God's word stands as absolute truth to be known, applied in every aspect of life. Scripture is the very foundation upon which the church is built and comprises not only the content of the message that the church proclaims, but also the methods by which the church operates. Every decision and aspect of ministry must be submitted to the scrutiny of biblical teaching and doctrine. This local church affirms the following. Inspiration, verbal and complete inspiration. Scripture is indeed breathed out by God. Also, inerrancy. It contains no errors. God conveyed truth to divinely chosen individuals. What they wrote did not stray from the truth as it existed in the mind of God. Refer to Psalm 19. Authority also, what it says I must do. The ramifications of the authority of Scripture upon a ministry are manifold. For example, the church is never to stray outside the boundaries given in the Word of God. Every aspect of ministry, whether a sermon, a Bible study, a program, or even an activity, must be motivated by an understanding of the authority of Scripture and must bring Scripture to bear upon the lives of believers. Since the Bible is completely authoritative for belief and practice, the church need not derive its methods from the culture nor conform its message to what is acceptable in the eyes of the world. Yet we see so many churches do that very thing, don't we? They want to appeal to the secular mindset to the world and entertain rather than inform and equip. Ministry must be dedicated by principles taught in Scripture itself. 
Also, the Bible is sufficient. The scriptures are not only authoritative over every aspect of life and ministry, they are also sufficient for the same. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Again, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The implications of this verse are astounding. It asserts that the word of God is sufficient for all areas of ministry, including preaching, teaching, um, and counseling. Therefore, the primary focus of every sermon, Bible study, or counseling opportunity must be the teaching of Scripture. And this is why we're addressing this up front in this session. I do want to share with you another aspect. You're all familiar with this little note sheet, and many of you probably use other, other uh, mediums for taking notes. But it's very important to see what's on the back of this. And it says, be a doer. Your responsibility by God's enabling is to consistently apply the divine principles and truths you have heard. As you meditate on this message, ask yourself these questions. How does God want my beliefs or actions to change? Another question, how can I accomplish this change? And number three, what is the first step toward bringing about this change? Some have said incorrectly that John's teaching isn't practical. Well, if Bible teaching isn't practical, I don't know what is. Now, does that mean he's going to go step by step what you must do? No. Sometimes we might have that. But more importantly, what is the spirit illumining to you in the message you just heard? Are you looking at that, reviewing that, and seeing how I must change? And when I fail, how do I handle that? I pray that you confess your sin and repent routinely. He does not get tired of our confession whilst he desires, demands our sanctification, our growth in Christ. The Bible is also relevant. It is totally relevant for every situation. It may not give us an explicit answer to every specific problem, but it will always give us the principles by which we can, through obedience, glorify God. The outgrowth of this essential component, the right perspective of Scripture, will be a commitment to teaching sound doctrine, as well as how Christians are to change and grow. Pastor MacArthur says, If you have a high view of God and are committed to Him, you must adhere to what His Word teaches. The teachings of God's Word make up sound doctrine. Many Christians today are vague about doctrine. Many pastors offer sermonettes for Christianettes, little sermons that are nice and interesting. Sometimes they make you feel warm, fuzzy, sad, or excited. But seldom do we hear doctrine taught or even discussed. Very few preachers explain the truth about God, life, death, heaven, hell, man, sin, Christ, angels, the Holy Spirit, the position of the believer, the flesh, or the world. He needs truths that we can hold on to. You need to read a text, find out what it says and means, draw out a divine truth, and plant that truth in the minds of the people by repeating it. 
The point is that people need solid doctrine to build their lives on. Amen? Amen. If we fail to recognize the inspiration, inerrancy, authority, sufficiency, and relevance of the word, it would have devastating effect. This church instead, if we fail to do that, would pursue comfort rather than obedience, see personal experience rather than God's word as one's authority, use contemporary thinking rather than the principles of divine truth as a guide for living. The result would be a church that produces people who pursue their own desires based upon ungodly standards. Let me give you an example of that very thing. We have a TMS grad who uh, started teaching our Bible study, actually, many years back, Matt Tarr. He's in the Poconos in Pennsylvania at High Point uh, Baptist Church. And when he got there, that group had already split. The remnant that had remained were stronger on doctrine. But when he got there, there was a stage and a stage alone. And what they used to do is have skits and concerts and things of that nature. And that's what John was alluding to in that quote I just gave you. There were maybe sermonettes, but they didn't go deep. They didn't go into good doctrine, good theology and the application thereof. So what did they do? They took the stage out and put a pulpit in. That's the center of the church is the word of God being proclaimed. It's a great example. So as we consider the God of the Bible, creator of heaven and earth, we want to also be looking at um, a high view of God in, in the church. Without it, there would be a tolerance of sin and a focus on man as evidence in the teaching and the programs we were just talking about, and often those are driven towards felt needs. That result would be a a church that reflects a man-centered ministry and attempts to please peers rather than to glorify God. God's truth about himself as written in his word is what distinguishes us as a church. These characteristics are unalterable and non-negotiable. They cannot be compromised in any way. We must also maintain a high view of God as another outline point, high view of God. God is holy, righteous, and just, along with all of his other perfections, and he is the one who defines good and bad, right and wrong, and man's purpose in this world. We must seek to express his communicable attributes. That is, we must be holy and pursue sanctification. Now, just as a note, there's obviously uh, no way we would even want to try to go through all of the attributes of God. That has been done uh, message by message several years ago here, and I would encourage you to look those up also on the website uh, done by staff pastors probably four years ago or so as we went through the summer, and each message was dedicated to that specific attribute. But the incommunicable attributes, and these are, um, some are not dogmatic. It's man trying to understand what God has revealed about himself in Scripture. Some are very, very, very clear, like his independence or, or his aseity, 
It's of oneself. There is nothing outside of God that influences him. His unchangeableness, his eternal nature, his omnipresence, and his unity or simplicity, not many parts of God. Don't get that confused with the Trinity. God is one in three persons. But the aspects are not little pieces of the pie. He is absolutely one. Now, communicable attributes can include his spirituality, invisibility, knowledge or omniscience, wisdom, truthfulness or faithfulness, his goodness, his love, his mercy, including grace and patience, his holiness, peace and order, his righteousness, his justice, his jealousy, his wrath, his perfect will, his freedom, his omnipotence or power and sovereignty, his perfection, his blessedness, his beauty, and his glory. All human beings have a theology, without exception. They have some concept of God. Even the atheists, their position is there is not God. But Romans 1 makes it clear. Man knows. And again, they suppress that truth and unrighteousness, trying so hard not to believe. And they would be successful if it were not for the Holy Spirit drawing us unto a loving God, a holy God, a righteous God. Their view of God is that he doesn't exist and that that is the center of their theology. Liberalism and other isms have their own distorted view of God. For many, it is merely a God of their own choosing. A.W. Tozer addresses this very succinctly and profoundly. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend to tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. We worship in an amazing, blessed church here at Grace, one with a high view of God, and it affects all areas of our ministry, including the orientation of the preaching that we hear. We are blessed by that. The content of our music is even in itself transcendent and glorifying in its worship intended directly toward God. 
the substance of our programs and the focus of our outreach centered on that very mission, the Great Commission. Number three in our outline, we also have to have a proper view of God. I mean, of man, I'm sorry. You all know this. The Bible teaches that man is depraved. Man is indeed depraved means not that he always acts as wickedly as possible, but that his wickedness so permeates his entire being that he is enslaved to it and is therefore inherently unable to respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. We know from the word that man, number one, on his own, he cannot do good. Romans 3, 10 through 18 affirms that there's no one good, no, not one. On his own, he is unable to understand or accept the things of God. Again, he knows in his nature and seeing the creation that God exists, even the power of the Godhead, but that is not unto salvation. And yes, his heart is deceitfully wicked, Jeremiah 17. His goal in life is selfish and only evil continually, Genesis 6, 5. Mankind continually sins. Sin is any disobedience or rebellion against God. It is manifested in refusing to think, feel, act, and speak according to what he commands. This is the sin of omission. And or insisting on thinking, feeling, acting, and speaking in ways which God forbids. This is the sin of commission. Sin chiefly concerns the heart. To be sinfully angry with your brother is enough to convict you of murder, Matthew 5, 22. And to lust after another person is to commit adultery with that person in your heart, Matthew 5, 28. Therefore, though one may be externally above reproach, internally we are guilty of breaking the entire law, James 2, 10, which says if we're guilty of one, we're guilty of all. We know good works and intentions cannot fix this problem that man has. I'm grateful that the gospel is taught here faithfully and regularly, which is the answer, the only answer to man's sin problem. Would you open your Bibles to uh, Mark 4? This is section 4 of, of my outline, when sinful man comes in proximity to the holy God. We're going to start in verse 35. Mark 4, 35. On that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the wind, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? 
they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The great section of scripture as it all is. But here, you have fishermen brought up on the Sea of Galilee. Who have been to the Sea of Galilee? Okay, a fair number of you. I'd encourage you to visit the Holy Land. It is an amazing place to be. The Bible kind of turns three-dimensional, if you will, when you're seeing the places that you're reading. And it's an amazing, amazing gift. Um, just Just a sweet joy. But the Sea of Galilee is a pretty large body of water. I I did not look at its acreage or anything like that, but it's large. And when the winds blow, it can be quite turbulent. I don't know how big the waves can get there, but enough to swamp a fisherman's boat in that era, right? So here they are. He had been ministering. Jesus had been ministering all the day, and the the crowds were still uh, around. And so he said, let us go to the other side. Leaving that crowd, as I mentioned, they took him along. And again, as they got out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side, this fierce gale wind came up. And it was enough to bring the fear of death to these fishermen who knew that body of water very, very well. They were salty, crusty fishermen, and they were. They were strong men and knew what they were doing on that body of water, and they were scared to death, right? It makes it very, very clear here. They were fearing for their very lives. And here is Jesus asleep on a cushion. So they're freaking out. And they awake him, say, don't you care? Don't you care that we're going to die? He says, I said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. The rebuke was probably pretty strong. Maybe loud, I don't know. But immediately, the wind was still. And it became perfectly calm, a glassy sea. What was their reaction to that? Fear. This is very unlike what Freud said was man's invention of religion who said that religion was invented to deal with man's fears. Well, these men had real fears in the roughness of the Sea of Galilee. But when that fear was eliminated, their response was fear. Why? They saw the very power of God in their boat. That's an amazing thing. Do we have that thought of God 
when the seas are restless? Do we know, do we remember, do we remind ourselves he is sovereign, good, faithful, and just? We need to. I pray that that's one of the primary aspects that you would take away from this session. We're going to look at a couple of other examples. Turn to Luke 5. Luke 5, 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land, and he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats, so they began to sink. Let's stop there for a moment. Here we are, really at, at, the, um, at the Lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is teaching, and the crowds are pressing in upon him, and the two fishing boats are there. They're repairing their nets. doesn't seem like they're part of that crowd really listening in, but they heard some of the, the teaching. But they were doing their, their job as fishermen. And Jesus asked them to put out, that he could come along in the boat and put out so he could continue teaching. And when he had finished, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Do you really get the intent and the comment and the thinking of Simon in his response? Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. This is an experienced fisherman again. He's like, it's just not a good time to be fishing. The, the, the bite is bad. If you know any fishermen, they'll tell you when they're skunked, it is not a positive thing not to catch a fish. Catching is a lot more fun than fishing. But these guys, again, are professionals. And they'd been out all night and caught nothing. So really, Simon here is saying, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. He's annoyed. He really doesn't want to do this. He said, we were already out all night and caught nothing. But he acquiesces in a sense. And then what? So Jesus tells them where to drop their nets. And it's so full, it's going to swamp their boat. They call the other boat out to help out. And it's ready to swamp both boats. It's... The scripture says in verse 7, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help. And they came and filled both 
of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions, John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. I'm sorry, I I missed a, a, a sentence there. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Do you realize that was after the best catch they ever had in their professional fishing? Seems rather clear that it was an exceptional catch. But that's not as amazing as the response. Here Simon says, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Why is he bringing up sin? He sees the holiness of God. He sees the Messiah in his boat and acknowledges that he is holy, and in contrast, he's a wretched sinner. He sees the control of the powerful God controlling the fish of the sea. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Is that commitment? It's full commitment. Jesus had been teaching and healing in the area of Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, Gennesaret. And crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Here the crowd is pressing in on Jesus, so he got into Simon's boat and asked him to put out a little way, and he taught the people from there. When he finished, he told Simon, not yet Peter, to put out into deep water for a catch. But that's an amazing account, isn't it? My question to all of us, have we left the world and our idols to follow him? And then I have another account I'd like us to look at and actually focus on here. And that's the account of King Uzziah and then Isaiah's vision as well. We'll be going to Isaiah 6, but I just want to start. You don't have to turn here, but I'm going to jump back to 1 Chronicles 26 
just to get a little bit of history on Uzziah. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Jumping down to verse 16. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. Here's still King Uzziah, a good king, but now pride is overtaking his heart, his attitude and actions. Let me repeat. This is again, 1 Chronicles 26, 16. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. This was not allowed for him to do. This was for the Levite priests only to do. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests the sons of Aaron who are consecrated, that's God made holy, consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord. But Uzziah with a censer in his hand for burning incense was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him and looked at him and behold, he was leprous on his forehead and they hurried him out of there and he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and he lived in a separate house being a leper for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Heavy duty, isn't it? I mean, instantaneous made unclean with leprosy as he's trying to do a priestly duty with which he was not consecrated to do that very activity. So Uzziah died and his son Jotham took over the kingship. Now going to Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. This brings things into context right off the bat. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And I want to stop there just for a moment. So King Uzziah died. And he was seen, even in that, uh, not in that prideful aspect, but he was seen as a good king who went against the Lord in, in that act that brought on the, the leprosy. The people were saddened at his death. And Isaiah is still dealing with Uzziah's death. But that is the time frame that we have here in the year of King Uzziah's death. Here's Isaiah's vision. 
I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, having, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. King Isaiah is dead. And Isaiah sees this amazing, amazing vision. Isaiah sees the Lord, Adonai, the sovereign one, sitting on his throne, magnificent, majestic, and mighty, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple, a sense of power, of rule, of omnipotence. The seraphim, burning, glowing, are known as the fiery ones, an order of celestial beings. Isaiah sees them in this vision standing above the sovereign as he sat upon his throne. They each have three pairs of wings with one of which they covered their faces in humility. With the second, they covered their feet, sign of respect and lowliness of their creatureless, creatureliness, creatureliness before the creator. With the third pair, they flew. They possess resemblance of the human figures, it seems, with the addition of the wings. Their occupation was twofold, to celebrate the honor praises of Yahweh's holiness and power and to act as the medium of communication between heaven and earth, ready to be dispatched. They call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is a Trinitarian proclamation of Yahweh's holiness. Said three times affirming his being completely holy. You wouldn't say the most holy because that's a gradient. He is absolutely holy. Not just holy, nor holier, he is holiest Perfectly, completely, fully holy is the Lord Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The Lord of hosts means God as Lord over earthly and or heavenly armies. An army of angels, as an example, you'll see that in the, in the word as Lord of hosts. In verse 4, Isaiah witnesses the foundations of the thresholds trembling at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. It's an awesome image. 
the foundations themselves were trembling. Do we tremble before a holy God? We need to. We should. On our face at times. Prostate. Prostrate. Sorry. I can imagine Isaiah is trembling too. Isaiah, in fact, curses himself. And this is a prophet that understands blessing and cursing. As a prophet, he had blessed and cursed others. But here he is before God and he curses himself, saying, Woe is me, for I am ruined. That woe is a curse. And it's woe is me. He sees the amazing holiness before him. And he is ruined, or the King James or New King James rightly renders undone. I commend to you also um, the holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And he covers this section extremely well. He's really thinking, let me start from the, from the positive side. Integrity is being all together, all things working together. R.C. Sproul goes into, this is like disintegration. He is coming undone. He's ruined. He's falling apart. And he says, because I am a man of unclean lips. Lips. He doesn't say thoughts. He doesn't say actions. He says lips. Who can tame the tongue? It reveals the heart, doesn't it? We all fail in this area. We can be harsh. We can be less than sincere. We can be less than truthful. That is all an affront on God's holiness. And I believe all of us here understand that were it not for his saving work, we would be condemned to hell. And here, Isaiah is seeing, saying, I am a man of unclean lips. And he acknowledges, I live with a people of unclean lips. We're all sinners in thought, word, and deed. And he says, why this contrast of holiness and his, his sense of utter sinfulness? For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Yes, he is ruined, beyond repair, undone, fallen apart, disconnected, disintegrated. He has unclean lips. He's unable to tame the tongue perfectly. And before we think, even start to imagine that we can tame the tongue, though in sanctification we should have it more tamed than yesterday, but we also see Romans 7 as Paul is struggling, you know, with the flesh that wars with the spirit and the spirit with the flesh. He says, I have unclean lips. He's unable to tame the tongue, which again reflects the evil within his heart and does the same with us. All of mankind are sinful without excuse before a holy God compared to other man 
I might be okay, but Isaiah sees the contrast of the holiness of God. His sinfulness has never been more obvious. Many tend to flee from the light of God and his word for the same reason. I think that's why people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They say, if there's an authoritative, all-powerful, all-holy God, I'm in trouble. Therefore, we've got to do something else. Let's run from that. Trying to run from that is the whole image of the atheist, isn't it? You cannot run. You cannot hide. It's not a matter of what man believes. It's what God is. Only in Christ and in his righteousness can one be saved from eternal damnation. At this point, Isaiah knows he is guilty as sin before his holy God. But God dispatched. He dispatched one of the seraphim. It says, flew to me with a burning coal in his hand. I kind of wrestled with that a little bit before. It talks about a tongue and it talks about a hand. When I started to understand that these angels were defined as the fiery ones, he could pull it with his hand from that fire. And he could press it to his mouth in such a fashion. He said, it had taken from the altar with the tongs, but he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. The seraphim touched his lips with this burning coal from the altar. Do you think that part was pleasant to Isaiah? Can you almost smell that acrid smell of even burning flesh? Burning hair over the barbecue is bad enough, but burning flesh, when it's your seared lips... Let me ask you this. Is repentance easy and painless? Sometimes it may be, but not always. There is pain in seeing our wretchedness. There is an aspect of pain when we know our sin. Made it necessary for Christ to come to this earth, though majestic, perfect, holy, righteous, and dwell amongst sinners and be mocked and scorned, beaten and crucified. Yet, this perfect plan was from when? Before the foundation of the world. God's perfect plan of redemption was in that gift of loving sacrifice. It does pain us when we see our sin as an offense to a holy God. And if it doesn't, 
we've been entirely desensitized. Our conscience, God-given conscience, has been seared. Let's take our sin seriously. Let's take the gift of regeneration, of the forgiveness of sin, of the imputed righteousness of Christ as the most amazing gift ever. Because it is. Okay. Yet the pain of his repentance and acknowledgement of sin before a holy God. God forgives him and affirms your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. This is the truth that sets us free, that takes that bondage away. We're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, though yet, yes, we struggle with that aspect of sin. And we will until the day of glory to one extent or another. But the mercy and the graciousness of God is never, ever an excuse for us to sin. Isaiah's sin has been purged, his guilt removed, and this truth has set him free. The weight of sin has been removed. Then we have the prophet's commission from the Lord in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So there's a commission being brought forward saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Trinitarian aspect of us, who will go for us. And Isaiah responds, here am I, send me. You can see him. <laughs> he is willing. He is able. He's seen the amazing work of the Lord. He has known the cleansing work of forgiveness. Isaiah is eager to respond in obedience to the mission and the opportunity to serve God. Isaiah doesn't just say, I'm here as far as his location, he says, here am I, send me. He says, I am willing and available. Use me in your will on earth and forevermore. Isaiah is willing to serve his God. Now, what is this commission from the Lord? In verse nine, he said, go and tell this people. So here it comes. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Isaiah said, Lord, how long? How long am I to do that work? And, and that work, in a sense, seems fruitless. But it's not. It's obedience to God to proclaim the word to a hostile nation, to a hostile world. 
It says, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. It's a hard-hearted people. But God is sending this prophet to continue to speak the truth to hard-hearted people. Praise God, he has done that with his word and through the work of his Holy Spirit. Otherwise, that would kind of sound like us. Then again, Isaiah said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people and the land utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet, there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. There is a remnant. Preach the word both as a saving work to the elect and as a work of judgment to those heart of heart. We know God's charge to us is to love and obey him. Of course, scripture is full of instruction into God's will and holy living living and growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is sanctification. 2 Corinthians 3.18, I believe is John's favorite verse on sanctification. And it says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now remember, another person that was in the proximity of God was Moses. He received reflective glory from being in the presence of God, right? But that was a fading glory, a glory nonetheless, but it was a fading glory. Yet even that fading glory created great fear in the Israelites, you'll remember. Exodus 34, 27 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Second set. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because uh, of his speaking with him, with God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. He had been in the presence of God. Then Moses called to them and Aaron, and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had commanded... 
the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. We're in a sense, we are in the presence of God, an omnipresent God. Do you reflect the beauty of Christ, the beauty of God to this world, to one another, to encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching? I pray that you do. Um, is the time correct, 15 till 10? <laughs> Can I get a confirmation of that? <laughs> Yes? Thank you. There's just a lot of people milling around outside. I was wondering if I was going way over. Okay. So what about us? We are to worship and serve this great holy God. We're called to be living sacrifices Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Are we available to serve? Like Isaiah, willing to? Do we love God more than self and this world? It's an important question for us to continue to examine ourselves with. Verse 2 of Romans 12 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And please, folks, remember the two greatest commands. In response to a lawyer testing Christ, who says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. These two commands are clear and simple. Not simple to do, simple to understand. But grow in your knowledge of God. Study his attributes. Listen to messages on that because in fact, and this is why I touched on early, having a high view of God, that's absolutely the beginning to our humility before him, to our understanding of his greatness, even though it's finite with us at this point. And I, and I know you who are truly Christ's, his children, you long for that day. We were just talking about that a little while ago how glorious it will be when we see him as he really is and that our sin will be shed and away from us and no more, not easily entangling us in this fallen world. 
how glorious it will be when we're able to worship him as he deserves in righteousness, in truth. But we're here. Don't forget our calling while we're here. Yes, it's a fallen world. It's a crazy world. But let me ask you, though it looks out of control to us, is it out of control in the hands of a sovereign God? No. This is his perfect plan being worked out to ultimately bring him glory. Bringing him glory in justifying sinners like you and me. But also, bringing him glory in his perfect, holy, righteous wrath and the penalty of sin to sinners that have rebelled against him continued to do so and have not bowed the knee, though they will. They will bow the knee in a sense of judgment, not in a sense of salvation. But also remember, we do not know who is elect. The mission field is all who continue in rebellion. Communicate the testimony and the work of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior with boldness, clarity, and loving compassion. We too, outside of Christ, are worthy of hell. And don't ever forget that. It eliminates self-righteousness. There is no such thing. Anybody that is self-righteous is a fool and does not know the truth. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That brings us to praise and thanksgiving for the amazing gift, doesn't it? Would you pray with me? Lord, we are utterly amazed that you, being holy, righteous, and just, would give us sinners mercy and grace in and through Jesus Christ. We know we're sinners before you. We know that we still offend you with sin, but you have paid for our sin, past, present, and future. May we live to glorify you. When we fail and fall, when we sin, when we bring iniquity before you and transgress against you, Lord, may we quickly 
confess our sins and repent in turn. Thank you for your graciousness for forgiving us. Thank you for imputing the very righteousness of Christ over us, that now when you see us, you see us as righteous, as righteous as your son. That's a miracle. That's a salvific miracle that you have provided to us. Your elect, those who you have predestined before the very foundation of the world, before sin ever was, We thank you that you put your glory on display in exacting your justice. For us, the justice that's exacted upon Jesus Christ, your son, as he lived the perfect life that we couldn't, as he went as a loving, willing sacrifice to go to that cross brought there by sinful men, but they doing your perfect plan of redemption. Thank you that he rose again bodily from the dead and is alive now. Thank you that he is on his throne and he is our advocate. Thank you also for your justice poured out to the wicked. Knowing that we too are deserving but this is for your glory, perfectly exacted by a perfect, holy, righteous God. We are in awe of you, we worship you, and we are so thankful that you are a saving God, that you are still saving sinners today. Your elect are still hearing your word, your Holy Spirit still drawing them unto yourself, again, for your glory, but for the good of mankind. We praise and worship you. Thank you for allowing us to look at your word and seeing the awe of man in the presence of holy God. Thank you for your word. It is a precious gift to us. May we read it and heed it and continue to grow in sanctification until we return home to you. We praise you for all in Christ's name. Amen.